0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, Along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course on the Bloomberg Terminal. Great
1: guests joining Kaylee Matt and I now. David Kotok, the co-founder and CIO of Cumberland Advisors. David, you're the perfect guest to do what I've been doing with guests through much of this week, which is just the lessons of 2021 as we approach 22. Before we run away from this year, David, and get deep into 22, what's the number one lesson for you?
2: If there's a lesson for me, it's the ignoring of the history, John, of pandemics. They are different. You were talking about the Fed. I listened to the show this morning and all week, and the morning session that you do in the seven o'clock hour is the one that's reporting the status of this pandemic. When you hit the history of all pandemics, they are a lesson. This is not a business cycle that's typical. And that's being missed here. We're too much in the weeds and we have lots of historical evidence for to guide us, especially with the Federal Reserve. I went back and looked at every pandemic I could find. And there's indicators of impacts on wages, on labor forces, on prices, on interest rates, all the way back to the time of Athens and Sparta. What's missing in the conversation now is the impact. I read Milton Friedman's treatise. I read Alan Meltzer's treatise. They talk about the Fed. They don't even mention a pandemic. Hmm. And that's a whole different characterization of global economics. So the big takeaway for the year, as far as I'm concerned, is missing the big picture of a pandemic shock.
3: But David, when we look at it from a corporate perspective, profits have held held in there. They've done actually quite well. They've continually surprised to the upside. Do you not buy into the idea that you can look through the pandemic and the economic impact, which seems to be waning of each individual wave? You can look through the normalization of monetary policy so long as earnings growth remains there.
2: Kelly, I agree with that. The earnings growth is spectacular and it will continue. I agree with Paulson's estimate or Yodini's estimate or the other ones, 8, 10, 12. It makes no difference. It's powerful. Why do we have the earnings growth? We have a shock that's demographic. We have people dead, a million more in the United States than traditional trajectory. We have people disabled, not able to get to work. And we're not finished with this. So what do you get? You get a substitution from labor to capital. When you do that, you get productivity gains, whether it's a robot or telemedicine, and you get something else. You get a fall in the real interest rate. Every pandemic in history has a fall in the real interest rate and a substitution of capital for labor. Those are the macro pieces. By the way, j Powell understands this. And I believe the composition of the Board of Governors will also reflect it if it's the nominees we're seeing being proposed and vetted now in the public area. So big picture, pandemic shock, not business cycle. Earnings will be good, stock market will go higher, interest rates creep up a little, inflation will roll over back to the two, three percent level, and it'll happen faster than people think as the shock adjustment rolls out.
3: Well, you mentioned the empty seats that are still remaining at the Fed. and, And depending on who sits them, do you think we could be looking at a different, different trajectory of policy moving forward?
2: Well, if we look at the three names that are surfaced in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Mm -hmm. They lean center, but they are accepting of a changed Fed structure that also looks beyond narrow monetary policy. Two are academics. We know what they've written and said. They have some experience. And Raskin is a known quantity, but they're all confirmable. They are all young enough to hold these positions. And obviously, they've been able to deal with the financial a restraint because a Fed governor doesn't get paid very much compared to other positions. So I think policy stays in the middle. That's great for markets, great for the investor class. It's great for the country. What we don't want is shocks. I'm in the camp. They should not reduce the balance sheet at the same time they raise the interest rate. It's hard enough for a central bank to do one thing at a time in a pandemic doing two things and trying to get them both right is virtually impossible. So my it's view a good... is that one point at a time, do one thing at a time and get it right.
4: It's a good point and I also appreciate your point that we need eyes that aren't too narrowly focused. I think of your very liberal education, I know you studied not only economics but also organizational dynamics and Philosophy, right? Probably reading a lot of Weber and Foucault. Um, How how confident are you that this Fed is really in touch with the human effects of the pandemic and their policy actions, especially when looking at something like COVID and the effects of long COVID?
5: Well, Matt,
2: I think JPAL gets it. There's a community system in the Fed, it's got 36 members to it. I know. Uh, One, they publish their results. They are looking at the entire population of 335 million Americans and looking at the impacts of the various component parts. It seems to me the appointees who are being vetted now publicly uh, Cook, Jefferson, and certainly Raskin have the characteristic to look beyond the narrow. I hope the Fed looks beyond the narrow. If it's strictly money, and velocity and multiplier and not looking at full impacts in the agendas we face in the United States and the rest of the world, we're in trouble. But Jay Powell seems to get it. I applaud what he did as chairman and continues to do. So right, I'm an endorser. Now, if the politicians will leave the Fed alone and let it do its yeah. job, that would be much better. Independence of the Fed is always threatened. By politics, uh, I want to I want to get to politics
4: in a sense here, kind of rip up the script, Tom Keene style, um, David. And I look at your resume um, as I think about Build Back Better and the chances it won't pass. As I think about my personal concerns that the salt deduction cap won't be lifted, um, I look at your resume. You were the commissioner of the Delaware uh, River Port Authority. You served on the Treasury transition teams for Keene and Whitman. Um, you are a board member of the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. I've been asking myself a lot lately: Why do these states, especially New Jersey and New York, have such high taxes compared to other states? You know, it, it seems to only matter the 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 uh, um, the salt cap to the tri-state area. If it, if we don't get that, what else can be done to lower these tax burdens that are incredibly heavy on a lot of uh, working families in those in those
2: states? Well, it takes a shock and it hasn't happened yet. And I totally agree with you. Our company used to be headquartered in New Jersey. We're now in Florida. So we've got to change. We're not the only driver of the reason to make the change. We were on airplanes flying to Florida because of the migration of wealth here. Now, I will tell you, during a pandemic, Florida is not such an easy place because we don't have mitigation. We have a which is playing this differently. And to, in my opinion, that there is a detriment to that. My office is now extending its closing to February and doing a rolling month. We've had COVID cases in our staff among our clients. So we see a direct negative business impact when there is no mitigation. That's not an advocacy for a lockdown. It's an advocacy for thoughtful policy. Mm -hmm.
1: David, got to leave it there, buddy. But we appreciate your friendship, your partnership with this program through the year, and we look forward to doing the same through 22. Thank you. David Kotok there of Cumberland Advisors. With us now, I'm pleased to say is Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Officer at the Luthold Group. Jim, you've got a year-end price target on the S&P of 5,000. I'm trying to work out if that's this week or next year. Which one, Jim?
6: <laughs> it's, it's next year. I, I really think, um, Jonathan, we're going to have a very volatile year ahead of us. And I think we're going to end up, you know, marginally, uh, not, not near as much as we've been used to of late. But I, I would argue that... Um, it, it's probably going to be the best in the first half of the year. I, I I know we're up here a lot, and people think we might give some of this back as we enter the new year. That could happen, but I think we're going to maybe go above 5,000 during the first half of the year, on excitement that <clears throat> finally maybe moving uh, the. COVID from a pandemic to an epidemic and on the realization I think increasingly that inflation is moderating. But then I think in the last half, I think we're going to see bond yields come up and, and uh, the, uh, the Fed uh, taper, tapering and, maybe, and raising rates more aggressively. I think we could have a, a bit of a struggle in the latter half of the year. That's why I think we'll end up around 5,000 for the S&P. But I think the broader market, outside of the S&P 500 does better this coming year than the S&P 500 overall.
3: Well, let's talk about the bond yields going up, because I know you see the tenure at 225 at year end next year. Obviously, we're about 75 basis points south of that at the moment. Does it matter the ultimate rate, how high the rates ultimately go or the speed at which they get there? Do you think that is a move that will happen quickly and that that is actually what will be upsetting to the equity market?
6: Uh, It's a great question, Kaylee. You know, one of the things that I've looked at recently, uh, look back to 1926 and looked at all the months that we've been under a 3% 10 year yield. And I got to tell you, when you're under 3% 10 year historically, we've only been there about 25% of the time. It is a gift to Equity investors, because the stock market, what it does is almost 21% annualized, uh, annualized monthly returns, and it f- and it has negative monthly returns a third of the time, a third less compared to when you're above three percent. The return when you're above three percent is 10%, but it's 21% below. So one of the things I think is, is important for investors to focus on is rates are going to go up. But boy, I'll tell you, uh, until you get back above the 3% level, the history on the stock market is awful encouraging for stock investors. Um, that doesn't mean um, that a, a, a rate rise of 75 or 100 basis points over a short period of time won't bring a correction. I think we, might, we will get that later, this sh- uh, later next year. But it, I think it's important to realize not to totally run away from stocks, at least until we get back above 3% tenure.
4: Well, is there no alternative, Jim? I mean, is that part of the thesis? Or uh, do you see other places to go, especially to hide from inflation?
6: Um, you know, Matt, I I, um, I could be wrong, but I, I really think inflation is, is going to moderate. I, I think there's already some favorable signs. Commodity prices have kind of flattened out since May. Breakeven rates have flattened out since May. And I think what I'm most encouraged by, is that policy, both monetary and fiscal, have been tightening, really, since March. The uh, M2 money growth, annual growth, was 27% year on year in March, it's now 13. Fed's balance sheet was growing at 80% in March, year on year, and it's now under 20%. So there's been a good degree of monetary, uh, at least less stimulus, if you will. Uh, Fiscal deficit was 19% of GDP earlier this year, it's now, under 12%, so there's also been fiscal tightening, if you will, and I think that policy leads inflation historically anywhere from 12 to 18 months, and uh, that those tightening moves since, since really the end of the first quarter, I think, come into play next year in moderating inflationary force, so with the, commodity prices, which are the leading edge of inflation pressure, already showing a rollover and policy uh, behind that now moderating, I think we're going to be, I think it's going to be a good outcome for inflation. Uh, I don't think it's going to return to our 2% Fed target. In fact, I think it's going to stay elevated around 3% in the balance of this recovery. But I do think it's going to moderate next year. And that's going to calm fears of runaway inflation.
1: Jim, you just said something really, really interesting. You used the word tightening but then you said that the equity market wouldn't get hit until 10year yields got to say three percent now I'm trying to work through this with you now Jim so bear with me a second. are you saying that we can get inflation down with the Federal Reserve doing what it's doing without actually seeing tighter financial conditions
6: I I, I expect bond yields will will move up well as I said to two and a quarter percent next year primarily because I think economic growth is gonna to continue to be, to, to be strong. Um, I, I also think a realization is gonna hit us next year, Jonathan, that we're not returning to the Fed's 2% inflation target. I think the Fed may even adopt the 3% is okay. Uh, as an inflation target. They'll you know, move their inflation target up. And I think the bond market's gonna to respond to that as the year progresses. Interesting. I also expect the Fed to raise the Fed funds rate uh, over the year, and I do think that'll bring a correction, but a correction that's viable in my view, because I think the market will recover from it and move on to new highs. and. I really think that the earnings and fundamentals of the economy are going to remain very, very strong, and that is going to continue to drive this equity market.
1: Jim, thank you, buddy, for everything for today and for the year so far. I'm looking forward to looking forward to 22 to cover that with you as well. Thank you, Jim. Jim Paulson, there, the Luthold Group.
3: Sarah House, senior economist at Wells Fargo Securities, joining us now. Sarah, I know you think we could see a seven handle on inflation early in 2022. You see 5% for the full year. Does the Omicron variant provide upside or downside risks to that inflation outlook?
7: So I think for inflation, Omicron does provide uh, perhaps some overall upside when you think of the ongoing pressure on goods prices. I think you might get some offset in the near term on things like travel related prices. So we saw that weekend temporarily with the Delta wave improved a little bit in November. So I think the the recovery in travel related prices probably gets pushed back a little bit further further to the spring. So there are, there are some offsets, but I think overall, just given the the pressure we're seeing on supply chains and what that's doing, to goods inflation, I think Omicron probably does does pose a, a little bit of upside risk to that inflation call.
3: And is the upside risk to inflation larger than the downside potential impact to growth?
7: So I'd say it's, it's probably fairly balanced. So I think we've seen some give back in, in terms of activity. If you look at some of the things like, um, restaurant reservations, so think You've seen some, some moderate pullback, but I think overall the, the effects of each new wave has, has had diminishing impacts on both growth and, um, to some extent inflation, as well as people, um, are tired of, of the pandemic. And so I think we have seen a great deal of COVID fatigue. People aren't in travel plans um, around the holidays, even in the face of, of this very contagious variant. And so I think with that, we, we are seeing the overall effects on the economy, whether it's growth um, and even to some extent, spending patterns um, is, is diminishing.
4: When do you see that playing out in the data, Sarah?
7: So I think we will probably see some of it in, in the December data. So I think, again, we'll see some of that in, when you, we look at the inflation numbers, I think some weakness in areas like, um, like travel services picking picking up again. Um, I think you'll also see in terms of, of perhaps some of the hiring numbers, some renewed weakness in, in things like leisure and hospitality, as, as perhaps employers are, are maybe bracing for a little bit of, of a give back there. But I think it's probably really going to be more, more present in some of the January and, and perhaps even even February data. So we won't get a, a full sense of, of the dent from Omicron until probably um, early in the first quarter.
4: But it'll likely be a dent rather than um, a major crash, right? Because I look at crude oil, for example, still hovering around one month high. It doesn't look like Mr. Market expects a real um, ding in demand.
7: Right, and, and again, I think we've seen that this this idea of fatigue and, and people have they feel the tools to to carry on more with their lives than we did this time last year. I think suggests that we're not seeing that same degree of impact on on activity, and to some extent, that this wave is has the potential to be relatively short lived, given how mm-hmm. contagious it seems to be, the potential for it to to burn through pretty pretty quickly. And so, I think our our overall outlook for 2022 is still very much on on track in terms of another year of above trend growth, even if we get off to a weaker start than, than maybe envisioned only a month or so ago. But while we're talking
3: about the kind of demand side and the consumer, obviously, you don't necessarily see any risk to demand from Omicron. But on the inflation side of things as well, when we saw those personal income and spending numbers, this data come out last week, real spending when you adjust for inflation was flat. Are we going to see a consumer moving forward that is less tolerant of higher prices and consumption
7: going to start winding down as a result? So I think we are going to see greater pushback in, in terms of the inflation picture in in the year ahead. So we've seen that over over 2021, consumers, you know, many businesses, just largely price takers seem with that in seem seemingly insatiable demand. But I think that we are seeing demand, we're expecting demand growth to, to moderate over the coming year. So still very strong, but you, you don't have as much fiscal support um, at at the backs of consumers. And so I think that does lead to, to more, to more moderate growth. And again, we've just seen these eye popping and in inflation rates. I think people are um, considering thinking twice about, about certain purchases. And I think that businesses mm. maybe won't quite have the, the same, the same degree of, of pricing power, but I think they still have quite a bit. So mm. I, underappreciated in all this, the spending picture and and the inflation picture is just how strong demand growth has been. So we're we're going to see that moderate, but um, but still very strong.
4: I almost forgot that I was super excited about the Richmond Fed manufacturing <laughs> survey um, because I, I really am I'm looking so excited at, he forgot uh, <laughs> I'm looking at Sarah um, the supply chain I'm trying to figure out when this is going to get rolling again when um, companies are going to start putting inventory back into stores back on dealer lots um, and the Richmond Fed survey was good it came out at headline number 16 compared to 12 last month Economist we surveyed we're only looking for 13 shipments went from zero to 12 in a month Um, finished goods inventories went back up still to negative seven but from negative 23 does it look to you like these wheels are starting to turn again
1: it's a
7: start, but we have a long way to go when we look at the inventory picture. So we have seen some positive signs um, coming from the manufacturing service and uh, manufacturing surveys of the ISM, in addition to to the Richmond Index. But if you look at the retail numbers, so if you go further down the pipeline, the retail inventory to sales numbers have have still just really made no headway from the outright collapse that we've seen over the past year. And so this is this is the start, but I think we're still going to be dealing with these supply issues for the better part of, of the upcoming years. There's there's a long way, way to go in, in terms of rebuilding those inventories. And again, you still have pretty strong demand in, in the year ahead, if not quite as rip roaring as what we saw in 2021.
3: Well, and of course, we know that the Fed can't necessarily do anything about those supply side issues, Sarah, but the Fed is going to try to do something eventually to rein in inflation. Why do you think the move isn't going to come until the second half?
7: So in our last published forecast, that was before we got the before we had the, the December Fed meeting. I think what we learned from the December Fed meeting is that their reaction function is maybe a little bit more aggressive than what we had anticipated. So I'd say the, the risks to our call are, are perhaps pulled forward um, from um, where it, it might we might see a move perhaps as early as as the second quarter, but I think overall, um, you know, to your point that there is some limitations and really where what the Fed can do given the where a lot of these these inflation pressures are coming from. But they certainly can signal that they are attuned to these inflation risks, that they are in a better position to to tackle them if they should persist through the second half of, of the year, which we think they certainly will. And so that should get the Fed moving more aggressively um, in, in the second half of, of the year to to help stem that and signal that they are on top of this in inflation quandary that's facing the, the economy.
1: Sarah, this was too serious. The final question from me. When does the Christmas tree come down? When's <laughs> New the decision? Year's day. New Year's Day. You yeah, go on New yeah. Year's Day. Kelly, when do you yeah,
7: go? Yeah, may, maybe maybe a day or two after given that it's it's on a uh, that we'll have the extra. I day was gonna say weekend.
4: how can you do anything on New Year's Day except for sit in bed with an ice pack on your head watching a movie? <laughs> you have to sunday too Kelly? Uh, I,
3: I wish young yeah. children don't allow <laughs> after New Year's after New Year's after Probably New Year's. the day after New Year's Day.
7: But I'm you with Matt tree I up Matt a recovery day. This year.
4: Um, no, not really. didn't? (laughs) But but we're constantly moving from country to country, so
1: we don't have any place to really put a tree right now. True. Sarah House, thank you, of Wells Fargo Securities, joining us on The Economy and on Christmas Trees. I believe the actual date, Kaylee, is January 6th, when the Three Kings arrived. Very pleased to say that joining us now is Dr. Bhakti Hansati, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins. Doctor, I want to talk about your experience in just a moment because you've been knee-deep in this pandemic, particularly over the last couple of weeks. The decision that was made this week by the CDC to cut the isolation time down from 10 days to 5 days, there was a group of people that said this was not a scientific decision, this was a business decision, a decision about business and helping this economy get back to work. Doctor, what was it for you?
8: Felt like a kick in the gut, to be honest, right? I mean, the problem was that the CDC media release that was released December 23rd was targeted towards healthcare workers, and I would be fine from a science perspective, right, because we think the incubation period and the viral replication cycle is lower. But this idea that, you know, because you're a healthcare worker, you're needed to support the response we're going to decrease your isolation time, um, was really challenging. The fact is I may be a healthcare worker, but I'm also a mom, a daughter. I have other people who are likely in my household are going to be sick with COVID that I need to look after. Also, when I don't feel good and I've been through COVID, which is extremely terrifying um, and varies in how it responds to individuals, I may not be ready to come to work. And I think healthcare workers are also humans. So, you know, as you can tell from the news on the internet, the healthcare workforce did not respond well to that press release. Um, based on a scientific perspective, I think we're still trying to work out viral replication. Um, we need more data. Um, but it seems that individuals are more likely to be asymptomatic and the incubation period is smaller.
1: Dr. you do you think the data backs it up, yes or no?
8: I think the data does back it up.
1: Okay, so that's a good step forward. How close are we to treating this as if it's any normal seasonal virus? Do you think we are taking a step towards that?
8: That is the million-dollar question. I don't think we're there yet. Um, When you talk about this thing that, oh, this virus is endemic, right, means it's predictable, the impact on the health system is manageable, and that the replicate for every person infected, one other person is transmitted to. We're not there yet, right? The virus is evolving, people are still being hospitalized, people are still dying from COVID. Um, I also worry that when we think of this as a seasonal virus or rub it off as mild, then we'll become complacent. I don't think we have room for that.
4: You know, I can understand perfectly, doctor, your uh, your emotional response to the reduction in um, the suggested days. It, it depends on whether you're looking at this as an economist who wants, you know, the wheels to start turning and business to get back to normal. Then you're like, oh, great, five days is better. But if you're looking at it as a human who is a experiencing disease, um, and it's taking an emotional toll, you don't necessarily want to go directly back to work in five days, regardless of what your job is, right? Um, So I just want to say, I feel you on that. 100%. 100%. Um, in terms of the hospitalizations, I know a lot of people are showing up in emergency rooms and hospitals who don't need to be there. And that, we can say, should be discouraged on here on internationally broadcast television. But it doesn't seem like Omicron is sending people who are severe enough back to the hospital as much as Delta or Alpha have. Is that the case?
8: So there's two questions here, right? Is Omicron independently less virulent than its predecessors, Alpha and Delta? And the challenge in really answering that question clearly is that the population right now is different to the population that was inflicted with Delta. People that are getting sicker are younger, less likely to have comorbidities, and there is a higher proportion of individuals who are vaccinated who are getting a secondary infection. However, yes. When you look at the actual number of hospitalizations right now um, per 100,000, that is way lower than what we saw with Delta and the number of deaths are similarly as low.
3: Well, but obviously, if more people are getting infected, then that will bring the numbers higher just by pure math. Doctor, how how quickly do you think that this could spread through enough of the population that hospitals could become entirely overrun?
8: Well, right now I'm sitting here in Bethesda, Maryland. I work in Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, and we are entirely overrun. Um, several hospitals in the DMV area have just declared a disaster um, declaration, uh, which means that we have man- we've had to suspend regular operations. Um, I was telling um, you know um, folks yesterday. I worked a clinical shift. Um, I was not meant to be working. I was meant to be one day off with my kiddos. And I was called in because we were so overwhelmed with the number of patients in our waiting room that we need extra staff to come in and try and sort out those who are sick opposed to those who can go home and wait for their test results.
1: Doctor, can I just say thank you for everything you do? You've just been absolutely brilliant this year. And thank you for working with us so closely over the last 12 months. Looking forward to doing more of the same through next year and hopefully we get some better news. Dr Bharti Hansati there of Johns Hopkins. Dan Ives of Wedbush has a 1400 price target right now, 1098. Dan, great to catch up with you, buddy. You say Tesla is in a clear position of strength. China for you at the epicenter of that. Let's start there, Dan. Why?
5: Well, I mean, it's about the demand. If you look at demand in China, you started off earlier this year, it was rocky. Now going 2022, it'll be about 50,000 per month run rate. I think that could be 40% of deliveries for Tesla going into next year. And that's a whinge pin to the bull thesis, plus the supply piece is really key because also the profitability for cars they sell in China are incrementally higher than those that they sell in the US and Europe. And that is why in our opinion, This is stock that continues to move higher in the China story.
1: Can the U.S. players disrupt the game? I mean, that's the part of this story I'm excited about, Dan. The likes of GM, Ford, let's see what they can do in the next couple of years. GM is under your coverage now. Walk us through that, Dan, how GM becomes a disruptor after being disrupted over the last several years.
5: Yeah, and it's a great point. Look, we don't view this as a zero-sum game. It's not Tesla or and there's one winner. That was really the last few years. Now, you look at the stalwarts in Detroit, Ford, GM, I think there's a massive renaissance of growth. And I think these stocks, specifically GM, is going to get re-rated on the EV initiatives. And if you get conversion of 10 15% of the base over the next three to four years, this is a $100 stock. And then you look at Ford, what Farley's done. I think that's another story that continues to get re-rated because as me and you've talked about many times, I never view Tesla as an automotive company. I view it as a disruptive technology player. I think you're going to start to see those multiples. And I think VW, you put them in that same bucket.
4: How much does the supply chain snafu um, that we've seen over the last year push things back, Dan? Because I'm pumped to see Farley's F-150 Lightning. I can't wait uh, to see Mary Barra's Hummer, but I feel like it's going to take a few years before these things are actually rolling on the streets, looking at how long it took them to get the Bronco out there.
5: Yeah, I, look, I think it's a great point. I do think this is different in terms of what we've seen on EVs. We're starting to see from an engineering perspective, battery perspective. I mean, the, these companies really do have into the deep end of the pool on EVs. So I think for GM, as opposed to the snafus over the last few years, I don't think we see that over the coming years. And it's, you know what everything Mary and the team are doing, that's why I think GM will be that re-rating on the 30 models coming out over the next six, seven years. And you look at Ford. I mean, F-150 in terms of on the, the electric side, I mean, that's really going to revolutionize the category along with Rivian. And we kind of view that pickup truck market overall as a trillion dollar market over the next decade for EVs. I'm so
4: excited uh, for it, Dan. Is the market, though, big enough for all the players? I know it's not a zero sum game, but there's so many names out there. uh, Tesla and Rivian just. Rivian is one of the newcomers. Lucid is another one. You've got the kind of stranger Lordstown Motors. I don't think they've actually made anything. Nikola, apparently they're going to have production. You've got Bollinger playing in the pickup truck space, plus all the old school GM, Ford, Volkswagen. Is
5: this market uh, going to be big enough for all of them in, by 2030, for example? Well, like in any market, you're going to have winners and you're going to have losers that go by the wayside. That's why I think as an investor, you gotta have a basket way to play it. You know, Tesla continues to be our favorite, but you look at names like Rivian in terms of what they're doing on pickup and ultimately as sort of a vertical integration. And then you want to play Europe, you want to play China, you want to play Neo X-Ping and some of those. But you know, I think it's a fork in the road situation as we in 2022. Because like you said, it's about execution. Any of these startups mis-execute or have any sort of headwinds, I mean, stocks could get the natural split down 50%, 60%, many throw in the white towel. So then you have to almost separate in terms of who's going to be the winners. And also, there's going to be a lot of supply chain players, names like Lie Cycle, Charge Point, and some others in terms of the infrastructure side.
3: When we talk about EVs, Dan, Matt was bringing this up earlier. How is there a limit to demand growth, given that the infrastructure isn't necessarily as robust as can support, you know, every single American having an electric vehicle?
5: I mean, today it's only three. So if you look globally, three percent of automotive is EVs. We think that goes to 10 percent by 2025. Now. The infrastructure today could support getting up to about 15% of autos Mm. being EVs. Now, ultimately, you're going to have to get charging stations up to about 500,000 by the end of the decade. But I mean, if you look at the growth potential, that's why we view it. It's a $5 trillion green tidal wave in terms of the amount of spend over the next decade. I think you start to hit some issues in terms of from an infrastructure perspective if we don't see any movement, especially in the U.S., in terms of charging stations, the grid needs upgrades and some things like that. But that won't happen until 2025, 2026. Between now and then, we see a very, very clear path to massive growth. And of course, Europe—you know—I I think we're really starting to see acceleration there, which is why that gig Berlin factory is so important.
4: Yeah, does does any but does any other manufacturer do it? Uh, as big as Tesla? I mean, their supercharger network is huge, but I haven't seen any of the competitors go out and do it on their own. They're all waiting for the government to to come and step in.
5: Well, that's why in the EV market, it's Tesla's world and everyone's paying rent, as of now, because of the supercharger network and because of that capacity. And when you look at Berlin, Austin, and China combined, along with Fremont, mean, they'll have capacity about 2 million units. So just like you're talking about, Matt, with like some of these companies that have had stumbles, can they actually get the cars out? That's why Tesla continues to sort of own the market. But that's not necessarily going to be the case so over the next, call it, you know, one to two years. You will have other players, Ford, GM, Rivian, Lucid and some others really start to, you know, I think be major beneficiaries. VW, obviously, we're very bullish on in terms of what they're doing in Europe.
1: Dan, you're awesome, buddy, and it's great to catch up. It's been too long. Great to be here. Dan Ives, thank you, sir, of Wedbush.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course... On The Terminal, I'm Tom Keene and this is Bloomberg.